Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Chris Pope. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a political scientist, and an expert on healthcare policy. His recent writing for City Journal punctures myths about the American welfare state by bringing a comparative perspective to the issue. So, Chris, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. Good to speak with you. Um, So let's start with uh, one of the more striking observations that you made in a recent piece for us. A recent study published by the World Inequality Lab at the Paris School of Economics observed that the U.S. stands out as the country that redistributes the greatest fraction of national income to the bottom 50%. Now, this flies against everything we're typically uh, um, hearing about the American welfare state, which is supposed to be so stingy. So, so what is you know what is up with that? So, I think I think the uh, the best way to understand that observation is that it's it's stingy in so far as we're very careful who we give benefits to, um, but when you actually get benefits, if you're disabled, if you're unemployed, if you're a single mother, the actual benefit levels are comparable to the levels you might see in Europe. Uh, what we do do is we make very careful, we make very sure that people who get benefit benefits aren't able to work. That this is generally the case in um, in disability. We kind of do probably more verification than other nations do. For in the case of unemployment, we limit the duration of benefits so that they're not indefinite. Um, and for pensions, which is probably the most expensive of all these benefits, um, we in terms of fiscally. Uh, we 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 are uh, we 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 replace a smaller share of rich people's incomes. We, we we these benefit programs are really more of a safety net than a, an all-encompassing retirement provision, which they often are in Europe. And so the big difference is isn't necessarily on the benefit side in terms of generosity. It, it's the flip side of that, which is the taxes to pay for them. Uh, we have pretty much the same level of taxes on the rich as Europe does in terms of a, a share of their income, the, the richest 10 cent by about a third. But we have much, much lower taxes on lower income people. We have much lower uh, payroll taxes and we have much lower, we, we don't have a value added tax. So the taxes paid by the poorest half of the population are about half what they are in Europe. So the net effect really is that we're much more favorable uh, to people at the bottom end of the income spectrum. Uh, concerning public pension plans, Europe um, spends a lot on them, and it accounts for a significant uh, percentage, I think, of the difference in government costs. Um, what you know, what is that looking like, given the the demographic shifts in Europe, where you do have a pretty rapidly aging population? Um, you know, won't developed world economies, outstanding pension liabilities. Uh, isn't isn't this at some point leading to a pretty tough choice between reducing the benefits that have been promised and then you know taking away money from working age people? Yeah, I I, th- I feel like pensions is one of these topics. Uh, it's probably the least exciting topic in the world, unless it's your pension, of course. Um, but if you actually look at what the government is spending its money on, and especially in the countries uh, where the costs are getting out of control, uh, then you, it absolutely is the pensions that are responsible for it. Uh, we, we see this in, in City Journal, obviously, does great work on this, talking about state employee pensions. The numbers are often quite astronomic. And if you look at uh, 
the countries that have uh, pension liabilities that are most problematic, if you look at Italy, if you look at Greece, if you look at France, we're talking about 14 to 15% of GDP uh, already um, purely spent on, on retirement benefits. Uh, the United States, to, to give you a, a comparison, spends about 7% of GDP, and we're already potentially running into problems with uh, funding Social Security. So th these are enormous amounts. Th these are uh, maybe three, four times what uh, these governments spend on like welfare for the poor, what they spend in benefits for the unemployed. Um, pensions really are the overwhelming uh budget item uh, for these countries. And they're projected to increase uh, substantially into the in the next few years, just on autopilot from um, from people aging longer, uh, from the, the there being a smaller share of the population that's uh, in working age to support these people. And so it, it's a real pinch, even if they keep on going as they are. Right. Uh, turning to um, the health care issue, uh, a quote from Bernie Sanders uh, on Twitter uh, is, is, I think, worth commenting on. So he said, in 2015, the United States spent almost $10,000 per person for health care. The Canadians, Germans, French, and British spent less than half of that while guaranteeing health care to everyone. And he went on to say that these countries have higher life expectancy rates and lower infant mortality rates than we do. Um, as you've no noted many times in your writing, the United States is, in fact, at the cutting edge in healthcare in many respects. So Americans have an array of medical options for maladies uh, that, that Europeans often don't have immediate access to. And the U.S. is a leader in medical and pharmaceutical innovation. But Sanders isn't wrong, right? The, the, these, these are actual facts that he's pointing out. So, so why is it that healthcare in the United States has become so comparatively expensive? Yeah, I mean, it, it, and I think he, he definitely taps into real concerns that people have that healthcare is a big budget item. It's a big, unwieldy expense that people have very little control over. Um, and so it really does feel like having healthcare, as he puts it, uh, is an all or nothing thing. Uh, the, the, you're either somebody who has health health insurance, I guess he's talking about, uh, or someone who doesn't have it, or entitlement coverage. But in reality, ha having healthcare or not having healthcare, it's really much more, much more of a spectrum uh, of goods than that. Uh, healthcare is about a sixth of the economy, and it covers a vast array of different goods. It covers things right down from the bottom, from antibiotics, uh, which cost uh, cents on the dollar or only a couple of dollars, up to... Um, up to cutting edge cancer therapies that are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the, the issue of whether you have healthcare or don't have healthcare kind of, uh, kind of blurs over the, the essential point, which is which healthcare services do people have access to? And that really is, is the much more important question. Um, and it's the question that really determines the, the essence of healthcare policy, the essence of all the fiscal debates that people have in all, all kinds of different countries. And, its relation with life expectancy and health is kind of a, a complex one. Obviously, the um, the the most the best healthcare in the world isn't going to make a sick person uh, 
better off or in, in better health than someone who didn't get sick in the first place, someone who was healthy. Um, and so we're really talking about what is, what is, um, what is really a, a set of expenditures to mitigate illness, uh, which are always going to be somewhat imperfect. And unfortunately, at, at this point, probably not enough to offset some really substantial now differences that different populations have. Um, the United States has twice the rate of obesity than many European countries. And so we have a much higher rate of cardiovascular disease, much higher rates of cancer. And so we need a lot more healthcare really to have the same outcomes as if, if you're almost spent nothing on healthcare. Um, we, we, we need to use a lot more healthcare really just to restore uh, people to a, a fraction of the health that, that they're uh, that, that, that would catch up with the European level. And so it's really kind of misunderstands the, the nature of what healthcare spending can do and what, what it can achieve. It's in, in some cases, it might feel like it's a magic wand, uh, like you give a, a course of antibiotics to people um, and, and they're restored to health and they go on their way. But that in, in many cases, and in, in the most expensive healthcare services, it's not like that. Uh, even the cutting edge cancer therapies are going to be a little bit hit and miss. They're not always going to work. Does that mean you shouldn't give them to everybody? No, but it does mean that there are going to be trade-offs involved in any uh, decision to make available the uh, make available these drugs to people. And it means that there are, there are really difficult decisions and that there isn't always necessarily an easy uh, yay or nay associated with it. Sure. Um, you know, John Tierney, one of one of our contributing editors, has written a lot uh, for us on pharmaceutical prices, and um, you know, it's 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 the argument he makes. I think it's true that that the higher prices of pharmaceuticals in in the U.S. in fact subsidizes innovation, and that means that the rest of the world gets, in a way, to fr- free ride off of American ingenuity. Um, that that we we become the pharmacy to the world. Um, U.S. government proposals, which frequently circulate to bring down the prices of new drugs, if if enacted, you know, in the wrong way, could risk discouraging some of this innovation. Uh, is this also true? First of all, would you agree with that? And and is this also the case with other domains of healthcare innovation? Yeah, I think the fundamental point with the United States and healthcare is that we're a substantially more affluent country uh, than other developed countries. The GDP is about 50% higher than many European countries. And so uh, GDP per capita. And so the willingness to pay for uh, medical treatment is, is substantially greater. And that's true just as it is for the willingness to pay for other consumer goods. So this is true for for hospital care. It's true for physician services, and it's true for prescription drugs equally. Um, the the proposals that you, that you hear made being made legislatively to to cap prices for prescription drugs do tend to single out drugs uh, for, for for that kind of treatment, um, and it, it's a little bit strange to sort of cap our willingness to pay for drugs while letting the willingness to pay for hospital care uh, sort of spiral uh, up without any real limit. It's sort of, it's, 
it's it's also kind of bizarre in the sense that the drug innovation is really where most of the progress is in healthcare. And so if you're curtailing the rewards for innovation in drugs, you're actually uh, you're actually limiting uh, future development much more than you would if you actually were to cap prices in other parts of healthcare. Now, I'm I'm, I'm certainly not a an advocate of price controls or rationing in other parts of healthcare. But I think you actually probably make the case that the cost of doing so for prescription drugs, it might even it might even be more damaging than in other parts of healthcare, just because the innovation dynamic is so fruitful on the drug side, because even if prices are very high in the short run, after a dozen years or so, a drug goes off patent and we get the low price, actually a much lower price anyway, in the not too distant future. So it's 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 a it's a very short sighted place to 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 really skimp on, on innovation. Um, Chris, you've written a report recently on what's called continuous renewable coverage, arguing that could fix what's ailing the American system of employer provided health insurance. Uh, what is that proposal, and and why, in your view, would it help? Well, the um. The prime problem, I think, we can understand maybe by thinking, sort of, if we have to, casting our mind back to the Affordable Care Act and the Obamacare debate. And it was this issue of pre-existing conditions that came up. And what the Obama administration did with that legislation and Congress did with that legislation was really to say the insurers had to cover people with pre-existing conditions at the same price for the same for the same premiums as people who, who did not have pre-existing conditions. Basically, you'd have to cover them on the same terms. The, the problem with this was that it basically said that an insurer has to cover someone who's already sick um, at the same price as someone who signs up before they get sick, which created a gigantic in- incentive for people to drop coverage, wait till they get sick, and then buy health insurance, which meant that insurers were stuck with a bunch of people who um, who were uh, who, who were basically who were basically far more sick on average than uh, than the than the population as a whole had high, much higher average healthcare costs than the population as a whole, and as a result of this, healthcare costs doubled within four years after the enactment or after the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the solution that I proposed to to that um, to that problem really as a way of basically avoiding the spiraling premium problem, but also as a way of ensuring that people don't suffer the pre-existing condition problem is basically to give people a discount if they sign up before they get sick so that they really rewarded for maintaining continuous coverage are able to get a price that's basically in fair proportion to their healthcare risk so that they're not penalized for doing the prudent thing and signing up early. And secondarily, providing a reward for them keeping uh, continuous coverage, hence the name, um, which prevents the problem of pre-existing conditions from emerging in the first place. The problem of pre-existing condition is essentially associated with gaps in coverage. The problem of a pre-existing condition is one where if you're not insured, you develop a, a, a major chronic illness and then you apply for insurance for the first time and then you're denied it. If, if a person 
maintains continuous insurance coverage, it prevents the problem of pre-existing conditions from ever emerging, which is really a, a full solution to the problem rather than a, uh, a, 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 a bad kind of jerry-rigged solution that has all kinds of uh, terrible side effects as, as the Affordable Care Act's approach did. What, what do you think the political prospects of such a measure would be? So I, I actually think they're reasonably good um, for the reason that it ultimately advances saying that both Democrats and Republicans are fairly uh, are, are, are fairly um, uh, enthusiastic about or would be fairly enthusiastic about, which is reducing pe- the amount of people with pre-existing conditions, making healthcare more affordable uh, to people who are currently uninsured. And it would reduce some of the bad incentives in the health the, the healthcare market. I, I see it as sort of a, a fairly technical solution to a lot of the market dysfunctions that we see currently. I, I think it would need to be packaged probably with a restructuring of, of the subsidies uh, that are currently in the Affordable Care Act. So that, that would be a little bit more complicated. But I, I, I think conceptually that, that there's no reason why it couldn't be part of a, a bipartisan package. Um, I, I think what makes me a little bit more... Um, optimistic about this is that we're finally a little bit past all the Obamacare wars, which lasted for about 10 years, where where anything to do with the Affordable Care Act, uh, Republicans would oppose it, sort of knee-jerk opposition, just because it was anywhere uh, associated with anything favorable to do with the legislation. And Democrats would uh, would have knee-jerk opposition to anything that they saw as in any way opposed to the legislation. I think we kind of moved past that a little bit. Um, And so there's probably more scope for pragmatic and, and technical tinkering that can sort of get rid of some of the dysfunctions in the regulations. I'd like to you to put on your political science hat for a moment, and I, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts about um, the Biden administration's legislative priorities so far. You know, it, it did manage to pass an infrastructure package, uh, but it's more transformative policies to enact federal child care, expand the child tax credit, uh, all of the environmental renewable energy stuff. All of that has faltered so far. And uh, the president is trying to rebrand some of those proposals, so he's he's basically dropped the Build Back Better theme. But it's not clear at the moment that that uh, project or that effort will go anywhere. So, you know, what, why, why, in your view, has the president run into such difficulties in enacting his broader agenda? And in political economy terms, what does all of this new spending? Tell us about the composition and priorities of the Democratic Party in 2022. Well, I, I think I sort of agree with, with Larry Summers um, in, in, in the idea that because, the, because in March 2021, last year, uh, the, the American Rescue Plan Act, which spent $1.9 trillion, uh, was so expansive and so indiscriminate in its spending and and so thoughtless in many ways um it crowded out the political appetite and really the the um the uh the macroeconomic room for uh for 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 spending and, and sort of deeper more thoughtful reforms more targeted reforms to potentially be done this year um some has made the argument i think quite patiently that uh, if they if they were 
that the, 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 there really wouldn't be any money left, that you would have a problem with inflation if they did that. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and now there's obviously, uh, so a big part of that legislation was was a big stimulus that gave everybody thousands of dollars of checks uh, with no real uh, deliberate public purpose other than to juice up aggregate demand. And it succeeded in juicing up aggregate demand, which increased inflation. Um, so there was really a lack of um, a lack of thoughtfulness, a lack of prioritization. I think it reflects the nature of the Democratic Party in 2020 during the, the primary. Um, I think there was an unwillingness to prioritize the only thing that was seemingly learned about the Obama administration was that the stimulus had been too small and that you could have had a better economic growth if you simply spent larger amounts of money um, and that that would necessarily generate prosperity, Um, which in retrospect was exactly the wrong lesson to be drawn from that. Um, But what's happened is they spent an enormous amount of money with the American Rescue Plan Act, which drove up inflation and, and kind of crowded out the rest of the domestic policy agenda. And now people like Manchin and Cinema and probably a lot more members of Congress are quietly very much opposed to that. And voters are now almost at a pitchforks moment with, with inflation. They're, they're looking at their paychecks and they're realizing that even if they weren't directly asked to pay for this through taxes, that they were actually the people that were paying for the, the le- last year's legislation through inflation and, and that it's it's been taken out of their pockets otherwise. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, Don't forget to check out Chris Pope's work. It's on the City Journal website. We'll link to his author page in the description. And you can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. Chris Pope is on Twitter at C-P-O-P-E-H-C. And uh, as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. Chris Pope, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.